0: More is James Bond 007 in Ian Fleming's Live and Let Die. My name's Bob. James Bond. Names is for tombstones, baby. Waste him, now. James Bond is back, and wherever he drops in, it can mean only one thing. Trouble! This is the Bond adventure with more excitement, more action, More danger. And more. Much more. Roger Moore as James Bond, 007. 007 is on a worldwide manhunt. The body count is going up. Where Bond stops to visit, he leaves his mark. On everything. They'll kill you. They will kill us. Love well, was lesson number two. Togetherness. Is that time before we leave?
1: For lesson number three.
0: Absolutely. Where they might not lawfully be joined together. Because Bond is on the move. And if you miss this one, you'll miss the most exciting 007 adventure of them all.
2: Welcome back to Geek Channel 8. I'm Eric. And I'm Johanna. And today we have the 50th anniversary of the James Bond film Live and Let Die from 1973. Woo! Woo! (laughs) (laughs) Woo! Okay.
1: Back to Bond.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Back to Bond. But before we get into that, what have you been up to since we last talked?
1: I am making my fourth attempt to get into Rick and Morty, which is something I don't understand why I have any barriers to this. It's got parodies of movies that I love. The whole dynamic is based on Back to the Future, which is a staple of my childhood. The animation is great, but there's something about it that I just, you know, I get six or seven episodes into the project and I'm like, that's enough of that. And then years go by. So. My son has been insisting that we watch it, and I'm finally deciding, all right, I'm going to get through it. I'm tired of missing these references. I'm tired of people saying, oh, it's like that episode in Rick and Morty. I just need to know now.
2: I will get around to watching it someday. It's on my list. (laughs) But, you know, it's it's down there. We'll get through the wire first.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Good call. What have you been up to?
2: So I have been – behind the wheel of a car a lot recently. So I have not had time to watch, but I have had time to listen. And I have been, again, listening to a podcast that does not need our help at all. It's one of the top podcasts in the world. Dan Carlin's Hardcore History, he had been doing a series on the Pacific theater in World War II called Supernova in the East and it dragged on forever. If you're familiar with his show, and we're kind of a history podcast, so I'm guessing that a lot of you are. One episode can be like 3 or 4 hours long with Dan. God. Right. So Supernova in the East, I listened to two or three episodes before I went on hiatus from it and he recorded two or three more episodes since then. So I had to go back and re-listen to the previous three episodes. So I'm right now somewhere toward the end of episode four of what I think is a five or six. I think it's a six-part series. So we're talking Ken Burns' length deep dive into the Pacific Theater of Operations of World War II.
1: <laughs> nice. Yeah.
2: Yeah. There's no getting around it. Let's just get straight into Live and Let Die from 1973.
1: Live and Let Die, the eighth Bond film and Roger Moore's first. While filming Diamonds Are Forever, Live and Let Die was chosen as the next Fleming novel to adapt because the screenwriter, Tom Mankiewicz, thought... It would be daring to use black villains during a time when the Black Panthers were on the rise. It's interesting thinking about that now in the context of what was happening in 1973. But it is something unique among Bond films. Live and Let Die was actually the second novel to be written, and they waited to adapt it now. But it's one of the reasons why we see some familiar characters from other James Bond films showing up in this.
2: Yes, I have read this novel. When we originally decided to take on Bond, my idea was we would do Bond in Bond career order, which is essentially Fleming book order. So we did Casino Royale, the three different versions of it first, which is Bond's first adventure. What follows that should have been Live and Let Die. But when they rebooted the series with Daniel Craig they were going to like tell the backstory that led up to that. So we're like, okay, we'll follow with Quantum of Solace, which follows right on the heels of Casino Royale. So then I went read the short story Quantum of Solace, which um, is not real. It's like I believe I called it at the time my dinner with Andre and <laughs> Bond. Um, it's It's just a conversation over a dinner. Then we followed the Daniel Craig order, and we went to Skyfall, and then Spectre, and this pissed me off because they jumped to mid-career, and then to the end of his career, when this was all supposed to be leading up to the beginning of his career, so now that screwed us all up. So now we're going back to the original Bond order, which means live and let die, which I wish— I wish we had done before we did Dr. No, because it contains Strangways, who his death would have been much more poignant in (laughs) in Dr. No if we knew who the hell he was. Quarrel, Quarrel is introduced in this and then comes back in Dr. No. Felix Leiter goes through a lot of trauma with Bond in Live and Let Die before he comes back in Dr. No. And in Dr. No, Bond actually wonders whatever happened to Solitaire. Well, we don't know who Solitaire is in Dr. No because (laughs) we haven't seen Live and Let Die yet. Thankfully, that wasn't actually in the movie, but he wonders whatever happened to Solitaire. And we will talk about who Solitaire is here in a minute. So as far as the novel goes, I liked it a lot. Now, first of all, (sighs) <sighs> this was written by a middle-aged white guy. British white guy in the 1950s, the early 1950s. I don't even know when he grew up. But uh, Did
1: Ian Fleming grow up? I mean, have you seen Chitty Chitty Bang Bang?
2: <laughs> All I can say is that the casual racism is just everywhere. And live and Let Die. There's no getting around it. It probably wasn't intended to be racist. And in fact, I think that he thought he was being somewhat progressive by having a black villain. Like, why can't there be a black supervillain and not just thugs, you know? But the amount of times it talks about black people, you know, in general as like, You know, one monolith in a very dated way like The Negro or something like that is just super cringy, right? (laughs) That said, as far as the writing goes, I find it to be the best Bond novel that I've read so far. And I have read Casino Royale, uh, Doctor No, um, Moonraker. And, uh, and Live and Let Die, and of course the short story Quantum of Solace. And out of all those, Live and Let Die is my favorite. I'll talk about, as we go, things that I think were better or worse in the book or the movie, or things that were different in the movie, in the book. I'm not going to go into that point by point. But what I will say is just an overall rating of the book, which is, so far, I think it's my favorite Bond novel. Uh, but more on that as we go.
1: This film, in a lot of ways, was marking a big change in the Bond franchise because this is the first time we're losing Connery in exchange for someone else. And there was some fraught discussion over who was going to replace James Bond. United Artists was determined that the next Bond should be an American, but Albert Broccoli, thank God. <laughs> stood his ground and Jimmy Bond Jimmy
2: Bond um, <laughs> did not happen.
1: <laughs> so so thank goodness Albert Broccoli stood his ground but some of the folks considered were Steve McQueen, Paul Newman, Burt Reynolds which that would have been a completely <laughs> different direction. I don't know if there would have been any other James Bonds after <laughs> that. <laughs> um Broccoli thought about Anthony Hopkins, but fortunately Hopkins said, eh, "I don't think I don't think I'm the right guy for this." although that would have been pretty interesting also. Eventually, Brockley settled on Roger Moore, who had been initially considered even before Connery, and thanks to his success on The Saint, seemed like an heir apparent.
2: And I'd like to point out that Roger Moore was Ian Fleming's choice. We had said in the beginning that he wasn't his first choice, but he was one of the short list that Ian Fleming... Wanted before Connery.
1: Well, and Moore brought along some of his co-stars from The Saint throughout his films. But most notably here, David Hedison as Felix Leiter, who then comes back as the same character in License to Kill. Another notable thing about casting for this film, Live and Let Die is the only Bond film until Casino Royale in 2006 that does not feature the character of Q. They seem to think that there was enough gadgetry in the film without it, but when you watch it, his presence is surely missed. Instead, they decided to offer comic relief by inventing this character who is not in the novel, Sheriff J.W. Pepper, who <laughs> makes, makes another appearance in, in later Bond films as So
2: well. let me say something about J.W. Pepper. So J.W. Pepper is your stereotypical Southern sheriff, Think of Buford P. Justice from the Smokey and the Bandit films, which come after this, by the way, but Jackie Gleason's portrayal in that, and you have an idea of what Sheriff J.W. Pepper is. One thing that I think is great about the Bond films is it being a long-running action series, it reinvents itself time and again with what is the action genre du jour, and this has happened many times in Bond's history. People were like, you know, maybe a Cold War secret agent just isn't that relevant anymore. He's not a hip cat. What's hip with the kids? Black exploitation. Let's make a black exploitation film because that's the action movies that, remember this is MGM and MGM almost went bankrupt and the movie Shaft, boy did that movie ever pay dividends. And so here they are a year later coming off of two extremely successful Shaft films that saved the studio. Why not see if we can bring a little of that magic to Bond? But one of the hallmarks of exploitation films is that you got a black protagonist. Well, they don't have that in Bond, obviously, but what they can do is have the
1: Dumbest white cops on the planet.
2: The dumbest white cops on the planet. Remember that from the Shaft movies? Yes. Well, that's where we get Sheriff J.W. Pepper.
1: Yeah. Dumbest and most racist white cops. Exactly. J.W. Pepper, though, isn't the only thing that's changed. Another piece of the novel that I think, fortunately, they decided had to leave out is uh, that Bond's villain in Live and Let Die is somehow also connected to the Soviet counterintelligence organization SMERSH, which shows up in lots of the Bond novels. But here, I think, was just like one too many things.
2: Yeah, even in the novel, it doesn't make a heck of a lot of sense. So the villain is Mr. Big. And Mr. Big in the novel, he grows up in the West Indies you know, serves in the war and at some point gets recruited by the Soviets, trained much like Le from Casino Royale. He's kind of working for them, but then he comes and becomes established as the crime lord in Harlem. And so he's somehow funding the Soviets with his criminal operations.
1: Well, and from what I read, and since you've just read the book, you'll be able to correct whether uh, the summary I found is wrong, but he's selling pirate treasure? <laughs>
2: yes. That is correct. Uh,
1: I forget which pirate it is. I think it's Captain Henry Morgan.
2: Captain Morgan. That's right. Captain Morgan, the rum. How could I forget? So Captain Morgan's treasure, he has discovered it or whatever, and he's shipping it into the U.S. in the bottom, in the sand layer of exotic fish tanks. He's got an exotic fish import-export kind of thing slash bait shop in South Florida. <laughs> and, um, and then these gold coins are showing up and they're using that to fund their operations. Even in the novel, it's very convoluted. And I have to say that when I read it, had I been the screenwriter, I would have gotten rid of Smirsh and Russian stuff altogether. I would have made it drug smuggling instead of gold coins, pirate treasure, although you can still have it um, be based in Haiti or Jamaica or someplace like that. And that's what they did. You know, people say that you either have a good book and a bad movie or a bad book and a good movie. I think overall, in general, the movies are an improvement on – The books when it comes to James Bond. But not in all ways.
1: (laughs) Well, it sounds like the changes really worked here. And their biggest challenge was just figuring out the filming locations. Once they decided they were going to be in the Caribbean, they had originally looked at Haiti as the filming location for the fictional San Monique Island. But due to political turmoil at the time, they switched to Jamaica. And then, of course, the segments that take place in Harlem, where the villain has his main influence, they supposedly had to pay off a local gang to provide protection for the film crew while they were there. So locations were challenging, but while they were searching for locations in Jamaica, the crew discovered a crocodile farm owned by one named Ross Kanenga. And they decided that for the film, they needed to borrow both the crocodile farm and the name of its owner. (laughs) We'll get to the crocodile farm later, but under the filings of stunts and other cool shit in this film, 26 boats were built by the Glastron Boat Company for the film's boat chase on the bayou, featuring one J.W. Pepper on the sidelines giving excellent commentary. 17 of the 26 boats were destroyed during rehearsals. There are also snakes all over the film, and during production they were constantly getting dropped or lost or causing actors to faint. Apparently, when one of the actors needed to jump inside a coffin full of snakes, he was willing to do it because it just so happened that Princess Alexandra was on the set that day, and he wanted to impress a lady. Yeah, lots lots of snake drama. And another cool bit of trivia, Salvador Dali was approached in 1972 to design a surrealist tarot deck for the film. However... His fee was too expensive for the film budget, so they went with somebody else. But apparently, Dolly kept working at the deck, and it was released in 1984. So if you ever come across this or find it, please let us know. We'd love to hear what Dolly's version of the Lover's (laughs) card would look like in this deck.
2: Okay, I got a beef to pick with the tarot deck in this. Oh? It's got 007 all over the backs of the cards. Hmm. What the hell? How does Solitaire who's never met James Bond happen to have a 007 tarot deck?
1: It's a good question. I did I guess I didn't zoom in far enough. I I, I missed that. It's just all so over the back of the card.
2: I think that it it's a it's a pattern, right? It's mm. zero, zero, 007, zero, zero, 007, zero, zero, 007. But I guess maybe if you don't look at it that closely, it just looks like a pattern. But to me I it jumped out immediately. That's that's 007 repeated all over the back of the card. Hmm. Anyway,
1: sounds like a creative choice by someone in the props department who then, you know, they're like, "You did what?" <laughs> oh well, too late. Fuck it, we have to go on. <laughs> then of course, one of the most important behind the scenes bits is the famed theme song, which was nominated for an Academy Award. And, of course, famously written and performed by Paul McCartney and the Wings.
2: Best Bond song ever. Best Bond Bond song ever. ever.
1: Well, and it's great that it gets to show up interwoven so much in the score, in part because McCartney's fee for just the theme song was so high. They didn't have any budget left over for a composer for the score for the rest of the film. So they hired George Martin, one of the producers for the Beatles, to write the score. And so, of course, the live and let die theme is very prominent all over it.
2: I've said my piece about this before, but I'll say it again. The Beatles are one of the unassailably best groups in rock and roll history. However, their crimes against rock in their solo careers are (laughs) numerous, especially Paul McCartney. I will take the John Lennon and his wife, Yoko Ono's collaborations after the Beatles, before I take Paul McCartney and his wife Linda's collaborations uh, with Wings, (laughs) Post-Beatles,
1: with
2: one exception, and that is the song Live and Let Die, which is a masterpiece.
1: Band on the Run is a pretty great song, too. But Live and Let Die is one of the only Bond themes that really has stepped away from its film. And you can hear Live and Let Die on the radio all the time, in a completely different context.
2: Thank you, Guns N' Roses. Of all, um, I will...
1: This film was a critical success. It was also a box office success from a budget of around $7 million. It's amazing how cheap it is to film most things in New Orleans. From a budget of $7 million in 1973 dollars or about $46 million in today's dollars, the film grossed in $73 or, you know, like a billion dollars in our money. So um, hugely successful. And with that, I think we can get into our reactions to the film.
2: Yeah, let's do it. Go ahead. Start us off. How's this open?
1: It is one of the best Bond opening scenes. I had forgotten how great this is, the sort of triptych of murders that you get to see. First one, happening in the U.N., like death by high frequency noise.
2: (laughs) Okay. So everyone in the United Nations, they have to wear these headsets if they don't speak the language. And there's somebody translating what is being spoken into whatever their language is. And someone unplugs their headset headset and and plugs it into a different – Now, I just want to point out, wasn't there – In the news, in the recent past, in the last couple of years, (laughs) embassy attacks in Cuba on American consular officers with a sonic weapon. What? Didn't you catch this? No, I must have
1: missed that news bulletin. All right. All right, go to the videotape.
2: (laughs) Yeah, give me a minute and I will Google this. CNN updated December 5th, 2020. Sonic attacks suffered by U.S. diplomats likely caused by microwave energy, government study says. And uh, the mysterious injuries suffered by U.S. diplomatic staff in China and Cuba that had been described as sonic attacks, in quotes, are consistent with the use of directed microwave energy, according to a report published Saturday.
1: Now I remember this. This was like in their homes or in their offices. It wasn't like – Through a headset. It
2: wasn't through a headset.
1: But still, same concept.
2: Same concept, yeah.
1: Wow. Anyway, so already First Death is pretty iconic. And then the next one is in New Orleans where we see what we think is a funeral procession with a second line band. And they're going on with a jazzy take on a dirge. And... Then, lo and behold, the funeral is actually for a guy on the street who, who happens to be there watching this all proceed. They kill him, put him in the coffin, and then it turns into a completely different jazz band where they're dancing down the yep. streets celebrating. I love that the whole band is in on it.
2: <laughs> yeah, but how did they know he would be there? Like, how did they know he would be on that street corner and they would come down around the corner and, like, be able to kill him and then take him away in the coffin for the jazz funeral. I don't know. It was cool, though.
1: Yeah. Awesome, awesome opening. And then we get the third assassination on the fictional island of San Monique. And that completes a set of crimes that then is going to put Bond on the case to investigate.
2: So in the novel, it actually takes place in Jamaica, which is one of— Fleming's Favorite Places. We've talked about how his residence, GoldenEye, estate is still there. Uh, It's a resort. Uh, You could stay at it if you wanted. Why did they change it to this fictional island, do you think?
1: I don't know. I don't remember there being anything so fraught politically in Jamaica that they would have... I mean, they weren't really involved in heroin the drug like the drug trade on hard drugs it was sort of more i mean a mar- ganja
2: yeah marijuana
1: <laughs> thing so but maybe there was enough of uh, an association there where they wanted to imply that a fictional country had ties to the u.s uh, illegal drug trade rather than
2: it's Jamaica. so weird because they used doesn't he set off to crab key or whatever it was in Dr. No. no from Jamaica.
1: Oh yeah, in Dr. No, it's they, Jamaica. They had like, no
2: problem with it being Jamaica. But
1: well, cuz the evil villain has his lair like in a secret island like oh, you know, it's it's different than saying like the country of Jamaica. Oh, y-
2: you mean in in the movie the, yeah. the well, okay, so let me this is where looking at a map of Jamaica it helps. But if you look at the island of Jamaica, roughly where the Golden Eye Beach is, the famous beach where Ursula Andrus walks out of the surf and all that, nearby there, there's a bay, Shark Bay. And Shark Bay has an island in the middle of the bay. And that island is the island in the book that the Morgans treasure, like – that is the place where they're operating out hmm. of. So it's a it's like a little island in a bay surrounded by a, the bigger island of Jamaica.
1: Yeah. I wonder whether some of it also is voodoo figures so prominently in the film that I wonder if they worried that Jamaica wouldn't want to be portrayed as being backward superstitious or anything like that. But Needless to say, it would have worked fine, I think. They didn't have to invent San Monique, except that they then get to invent sort of a dictator of San Monique, Kananga.
2: So yeah, that might be the reason right there.
1: (laughs) Anyway, then we go into our amazing opening song and cut back, and Bond is on the case and headed to Harlem to meet up with Felix.
2: Now... Had we been doing this in Bond book order, this would be Bond's first or second. Felix was in Casino Royale, right? Yes. Yeah. So this would be his second uh, encounter with Felix Leiter.
1: When M shows up to give Bond his assignment, he shows up in the middle of the night. And Bond, of course, is entertaining a lady guest who is an Italian spy. And That's right. has to hide in the closet. And money, penny... Happens to see all of this going on with arched eyebrows.
2: Yeah. So they arrive in New York.
1: Arrive in New York. And immediately this question comes up of what's the deal with the connection between Mr. Big in Harlem, this mob boss kingpin type character, and this dictator on this little Caribbean island? They don't understand why these guys are in business together. So right off the bat, we have a mystery to solve. And in the process of investigating, Bond gets to meet Solitaire, who he is immediately struck by. And he notices is somehow involved with Kananga in a way that is reminiscent of the relationship that we saw in that episode of The Saint. Sabao. Yeah, Sabao, between a leader who for reasons we're not quite sure of at this point in the film, really believes in the magic that she's practicing.
2: And not only that, there's a distinct parallel between Sabao and Solitaire in that the other people in the island believe that she has this power. They've been talking about it for a long time. She's prophesized to have this power or she's you know, believed to have this power and that she's somehow special.
1: At this point, we meet Mr. Big, who we know is in cahoots with Kananga in some way. And he very cavalierly just like tells his hench people to kill Bond. Okay. In... <laughs> All right, j- jump in. Well, this...
2: before we say that, I need to point out that Mr. Big is played by the late, great Yafet koto who we last saw in
1: uh, I don't know. Alien. Okay. Alien. Yes, I was. Uh, I was gonna. We we've seen him in Alien. This guy's an amazing actor, and I was psyched to see that he has a pretty full filmography. But Alien would have been the film that we've
2: we've last covered. Last yeah. covered. Yeah. I've been waiting to get to that. <laughs> and
1: I'm like, yeah, Ficoda, we gotta do Live and Let Die.
2: <laughs> All right. So here we go.
1: And you're right. This is where we start to see a little bit of that black exploitation flavor.
2: The fact that they were following a white pimp mobile, yes. which was the official term for it. <laughs> <Official> term.
1: <laughs> yes, that was hilarious. The <laughs> clubs they're in are super cool. I will say, Mr. Big is extremely charismatic. It's interesting seeing Bond up against a character like this. Like, you know, Bond with all of his polish and panache. He's used to being up against villains who are like, I'm going to set this timer that you're going to die by laser while I quietly leave the room. And here, you know, you've got a villain who's just like, yeah, just like take him out back and kill him.
2: <laughs> okay. So <laughs> let me talk about how this was done in the novel. In the novel, Bond meets up with Lighter, and then they go out on the town and they drink at all these establishments that are believed to be owned by Mr. Big trying to track him down. But they're, like, living it up, and it is a lot reminiscent of the Luella episode yes. where these two actors go from bar to bar to bar, right? Nice. Then when they get to one particular bar, they're seated at a special table, and that table drops through the floor, and the two of them are taken captive. Both of them are. They're both beat up, but Bond is taken to Mr. Big himself and has— solitaire there and solitaire's powers in this she's kind of like a lie detector and so she's supposed to tell whether he's lying mr big wants to know who bond's working for stuff like that he lies solitaire backs up his lie for reasons we don't know yet at this point in the story he escapes and ends up killing a bunch of Mr. Big's guys, and eventually rendezvous with Leiter, who had also escaped, by bonding with <laughs> with the guy that was supposed to take him out over jazz music. Apparently, Felix Leiter's a big fan of jazz music, and in fact, that does come up a couple of times in the Bond novels. That Felix Leiter's into jazz.
1: I wonder if that's just like. Ian Fleming's like, what are things I know about Americans that I can say in this novel? Oh, he probably likes jazz. Americans like jazz. <laughs> I, I,
2: maybe. Uh, but it, it it works. It kind of does work in the novel. And then um, Solitaire shows back up and he and Solitaire go on the run via train. So we won't see a train until toward the end of this movie. But a lot of the novel is them on a train to go follow the lead that takes them to Florida. And then from Florida, they go to Jamaica. So it's this, like, Harlem to Florida to Jamaica thing. And a lot of it is that train. And there are a lot of black porters and stuff like that on train, you know. And Mr. Big has this vast network of spies because, you know, in the casual racism of live and let die, all black people in America know each other. <laughs> and, like, <laughs> and so, uh, like— Unlike Shaft, where Bumpy doesn't even have control over all of Harlem, you know, <laughs> in this uh, they could make a stop in North Carolina, and Mr. Big would hear about it. It's very interesting because Solitaire is called Solitaire because she does not have any sort of boyfriends or male. Yeah,
1: she's like a Vestal Virgin character.
2: Well, they play that up in this. In the they don't say that that's the source of her powers or anything like that in the novel, which they do seem to imply in the movie. But they end up sharing this train car and not sleeping together the whole time. And this is because Bond had his finger broken when he was being interrogated by Mr. Big. And that plus he had to stay alert the whole time, you know, in case something happened to them. So it's one of the only Bond novels where, you know, he shares a bed with someone and they – the end of the novel, they do end up sleeping together, but for most of the novel, they don't. There's
1: Uh, a will-they-won't-they element?
2: Yeah, there is.
1: Yeah, that's very different from here, where we get two nearly identical kinds of seduction scenes, like back-to-back. Bond is indefatigable (laughs) in this department, but between meeting Solitaire and getting away, Bond then goes to San Monique, where he meets Rosie Carver a local CIA agent who claims to have been hired by Felix to help out as much as possible. One thing notable, Rosie is the first black woman that Bond engages with romantically in the film series. I don't know how it plays out in the books, but this probably was a big deal at the time. Although in the beginning, you know, she's posing as his wife, but, you know, she makes a joke when Bond says, well, how did Felix tell you to handle this and she said oh cyanide pills (laughs) but i thought that we could start with two bedrooms instead or (laughs) something to that effect so there's a little bit of a hot cold thing going on between bond and rosie but once they and quarrel take the boat to this island that's when bond puts on the moves and immediately after sleeping together he starts interrogating rosie this seems to be his primary strategy of getting information out of the women he works with. So post chat, <laughs> who are you working for? Who are you really working for? And she doesn't really respond, but it's clear she's a double agent and that she's also on Kananga's payroll. But she's legitimately freaked out by... Voodoo things going on is convinced that her number is up and she goes running off into the woods to meet her fate. So we've lost Rosie. Bond continues on.
2: By the way, Rosie doesn't exist in the book.
1: Yeah, I was going to say, it seemed like a character they created. Part of it was they had gone back and forth for a while about whether Solitaire was going to be a woman of color or a white lady as she is in the book. And They settled on keeping Solitaire as a white character and adding Rosie as a black character. Bond continues his investigation on his own and goes to find Solitaire and is going to enact the same moves on her, but with props.
2: (laughs) Yeah, played by Jane Seymour. This might be her big screen debut. I don't know.
1: Yeah, they had thought about Catherine Deneuve for this role, but I think Jane Seymour is kind of perfect.
2: Yeah. Although in the book, her hair is black, mm. like jet black, and very she's very pale. I don't think that's that important a detail, but it was something I noticed.
1: Well, she's definitely playing up the Vestal Virgin, innocent schoolgirl kind of thing in this scene, and Bond knows in advance exactly the way he's going to seduce her and he comes prepared with a stacked deck of tarot cards that are only the lovers (laughs) knowing that if he gets her to draw a card that she will then fall to his charms after which he will be able to interrogate her and get her on his side which he does although you know, there was part of me that really felt for her. She really believed that her magic powers came from her virginity and she's bereft <laughs> the morning after. And Bond is like, okay, yeah, I understand. I understand this is a problem for you, but like, let's get back to you helping me solve my mission. And she's like, no, you don't understand. The gods have taken my powers away. <laughs> Bond's like, oh God, what have I done? <laughs> like this woman is useless.
2: Well, he tricked her. Oh, yeah. Like, we, we. Oh, you should have known better. Like, we, we. So he had a stacked deck, right? (laughs) Oh, yeah. No,
1: it's kind of satisfying to see it sort of blow up in his face a little bit.
2: I'm not into the tarot or anything like that, but supposedly all these cards are not meant to be taken literally. But the movie takes them very literally. So death means death, and lovers means lovers, and.
1: I think it would be interesting to read the book and see how tarot is used there. I have to say I'm kind of grateful that they kept it simple and dumb for viewers because otherwise we would have had – like remember in Casino Royale where there's like a 20-minute explanation of how Baccarat works? Yeah, (laughs) It would have been like that but for tarot.
2: I can't remember if tarot cards even exist in the book. She just has mystical voodoo powers. And if she does use tarot cards, they don't make a big deal about what they are. She just says, well, the gods say this or that, you know, they don't go into any detail about tarot cards like that. I think that's a a movie thing. Yeah.
1: She's now going to be in danger if she's lost her powers. She knows that Kananga is going to see this as a betrayal. So they go off to escape and are captured by Mr. Big when they get to New Orleans and
2: Spoiler alert. Spoiler alert. This is a spoiler alert.
1: Then, lo and behold, (laughs) the reveal. Mr. Big and Kananga are one and the same. Yes. Which is a cool twist, actually. I don't think we see anything like that in future bonds of, like, two characters suddenly becoming one character.
2: So there is no Kananga in the book.
1: Yes, well, that helps.
2: <laughs> in this, he's got a mask and he tears it off and reveals under the mask is Yafit Koto. In the book, Mr. Big has some sort of heart condition or something like that. So his skin is almost this weird gray color to it. And the masked Kananga in this looks far more the way Mr. Big is described in the novel than Yafik Kodo does. You know, when you see this movie, I don't know if it stood out to you, but the mask just looked strange, you know? Yeah. And, uh, yeah, well, that's why.
1: Still, a cool reveal, and it explains now the mystery of how these two are connected and what their business plan is. Turns out that Kananga's business plan is infiltrating the drug trade pretty heavily
2: heroin heroin yeah, he's got poppy fields
1: well but- and bond points out he's like aren't you gonna make a lot of enemies like with the mob and stuff there will be certain very unhappy families <laughs> and kananga doesn't seem worried about it he's, he makes a joke about he's gonna have a monopoly on the heroin business that is only rivaled by like Ma Bell's monopoly of the phone business. So, Well, if
2: you remember from when we watched The Godfather, there was a big debate within the Cosa Nostra whether or not they should go into drugs. There were people that were against it. And then there was the idea that there was no such compunctions amongst the black mobsters. So your bumpies, you know, Alval doesn't talk a lot about drugs in Shaft, but he does mention it once yeah. or twice. And he specifically mentions junk, which is one of the street names for heroin. So, yeah. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Have to interrupt to say that in my notes, I had this, even though we've talked about it already. I said when I was watching this, hmm, heroin makes more sense than the gold coins of the novel. <laughs> <laughs> so,
1: yeah, yeah. A, a little bit more relevant to, to the audiences, perhaps. Kananga, after finding Bond and Solitaire teamed up together, assumes that Bond has seduced her and goes about testing whether her powers are still intact. And his henchman with the claw is all set to chop off Bond's little fingers and then move on to, to more. I love that there's always some sort of threat to Bond's penis in these films.
2: Yeah. The scene is. Actually, closer to the original scene in the book where he first meets Bond and solitaires the lie detector. Except here it's been flipped where he's trying to find out whether or not she still has her powers.
1: She seems to have passed the test at first. They don't chop off Bond's fingers in front of the audience, but then we find out moments later that Kananga has figured it out anyway.
2: And by chop off his fingers, we should say T. He, his main henchman, has a claw for a hand that you know can chop off a finger or whatever, and that's what he's going to use. Now, T. He in the book is just a henchman. There's nothing particularly special about him except for that he tends to giggle a lot, thus his nickname. So in this, I was like, why does he have like a claw hand? Why did they <laughs> add that? Well, that we'll find out that soon. I was happy to find out there's an actual there was a reason, reason for yeah. that. You know,
1: Kananga sends off Solitaire to be sacrificed by Baron Samdi, who is sort of like a shadow man.
2: Voodoo. Well, we talked about Baron Samedi when we were talking about Sabao and Papa Doc Duvalier in Haiti. This is the skull faced, top hat wearing Undertaker voodoo character.
1: Meanwhile back at the ranch we're following Bond and his fate where he's being taken to the crocodile farm and he is meant to be eaten by the crocodiles on this crocodile farm that has been shoehorned into the movie. okay
2: shark meter ding, ding, because ding. while I have repeatedly said that snakes do not qualify as a blip on the shark meter because they're fundamentally different from sharks in that they <laughs> they kill via venom or constriction. however, Sharks kill primarily by teeth and chomping, like they, they, they chomp. Well, crocodiles and alligators are the reptilian equivalent of a shark in that they basically kill by chomping. So we get a shark meter on this.
1: This very scientific explanation you've given for, for why crocodiles qualify. And this, of course, explains why Tehe is missing a hand, that One of the crocodiles was a little bit snappy that day. Yes. Bond, of course, manages to steal a speedboat and escape, pursued by more hench people. And this is when we get to meet our famous Sheriff J.W. Pepper. Pepper.
2: Okay, here we go. Powerboat chase. It's on Shaft's big score versus Live and Let Die. Which has the better powerboat chase scene?
1: Oh, man. That's so hard because in Shaft's big score, like the powerboat is just one part of that chase. Like there's multiple vehicles and legs to to that. And the powerboat chase is just the middle. This is an extended powerboat chase where I mentioned they destroyed 17 boats trying (laughs) to pull this off. So I don't know. I think I have to go with this one.
2: I think I'll go with this one too.
1: Anyway, after this awesome powerboat chase, J.W. Pepper is sad and humiliated, which is exactly how we want him to be. After pulling over one of the hench people and just, like, the most racist, like, horrible you know, things that he could be saying about this guy, short of saying the N-word, uh, just, like, really, you you are not on Pepper's side after this.
2: Yeah. Well, this is why he was included.
1: Anyway, Bond gets away and travels to San Monique to then go rescue Solitaire.
2: How does he travel to San Monique?
1: Well, with the help of Quarrel.
2: By fishing boat. Yes. While this boat is trailing to San Monique, we see dorsal fins in the background. <laughs> we, like, we get
1: more actual sharks. So, so
2: actual <laughs> sharks, two beeps on the shark meter now.
1: Yeah, well, and it becomes relevant because Bond escapes with a shark gun. Right. Like that ends up being his weapon of choice for the latter half of the film. Yep. Um, so he goes he rescues Solitaire and they escape into Kanenga's underground lair because no Bond film is complete without a megalomaniac villains underground or island lair or in this case both. Right. They then get to encounter um, actual sharks.
2: The shark meter goes the shark off. Meter this goes is a full-blown shark meter because the shark meter goes off way before this in the novel. Because Felix Leiter, when he's investigating this exotic fish and bait shop in Florida at night without Bond, is dropped into a shark tank and actually ends up losing two limbs. An arm and a leg have to be amputated. He's in a lot worse shape. They get him out or he gets out of the tank, whatever the case is. But they leave him at this bungalow that we saw earlier in the film with a note on him that he disagreed with something that ate him was the note that they (laughs) left on Liger. And so this really pisses off Bond. So Bond is really on a mission of revenge in Live and Let Die because he already hates Smirsh because Smirsch is death to spies, and they have scarred into his left hand the Cyrillic letters for spy. And he has to undergo some painful skin grafts to remove skin from another part of his body to cover this up so he can continue being a spy. So he's already mad. This is why he takes this particular mission to the U.S., because Mr. Big is working for Smirsch. Then... They do this to Felix Leiter, and then he's really pissed at this point in time. And there is a line in here somewhere where someone tells him that they live by the motto, live and let live, in reference to Mr. Big. And he said, I believe in live and let die. And that's how we get the title of the book.
1: And the verse in the song, which makes more sense. Felix Leiter sounds like a real badass in the books compared to the kind of comic dandy that he is in this film. Like we skipped over a scene where part of Bond's escape involves stealing an aircraft that has like a nice old lady who I guess is trying to learn how to become a pilot. (laughs) (laughs) And Bond pretends to be a flight instructor while he's, you know, stealing this plane and getting chased around. And then, you know, the plane's wings get destroyed. And it's just kind of like a weird Little interlude. But then afterwards, Felix Leiter is stuck on the phone with the owner of the plane, trying to like explain, you know, like this is who you call in order to get reimbursed for the damage that we've done. And it's just like, this is so beneath Felix. Yeah, no, Felix is a
2: field (laughs) agent in the books, although I will say most of his stuff happens off screen. So he'll show up with Bond and the night Bond gets into I don't know where they're, they're somewhere south of Tampa. St. Petersburg area, I don't know, somewhere in Florida, you can tell my Florida geography is not great, And but <laughs> the first thing they, they do is they start drinking. Like he brings out the whiskey or whatever, I forget what it is, and a couple of glasses and it's like old friends and they start, like whenever Bond and Leiter are together, they're drinking. But a lot of his agent stuff happens off screen. Like Leiter goes and does his thing, Bond does his thing, and we see the results of what Lighter has done, but it's an off-screen badass. We know that he went and confronted this bad guys. We know he got into this fight. We never actually see that part of it. We know that he escaped from Mr. Biggs' henchmen by like bonding with him over jazz music, and the guy decided to let him go rather than kill him, you know, and stuff like that. But we only hear about it secondhand.
1: And apparently, we are going to miss his ill-fated encounter with the shark in this film, and instead we find Bond in the shark tank.
2: Finally, getting back to my point of the uh, Death Trap du Jour in the book, they've gotten all of their gold, they're getting it off the island, and the last thing they're going to do is tie Solitaire and Bond back-to-back, drag them from the ship across the reefs that are surround this area so that they're all cut up and bloody and stuff like that. And this is known as Shark Bay. In real life, it's known as Shark Bay, the, the place that it's set. It's filled with shark and barracuda as if shark weren't enough. And he's going to drag them both and see how long it takes the sharks to eat them. This is all some sort of experiment that he wants to do anyway. That was the plan. In this, it's more an inlet into the cave or a tank. I'm not sure, but he drops them. They are back-to-back, but, yeah, full-blown shark meter.
1: Yep. But then Bond escapes, and then we have a really great villain death <laughs> involving one of the compressed gas shark guns, which Bond somehow manages to force Kananga to swallow one of these pellets that goes in the shark gun, and... Kananga kind of explodes because that's the kind of dramatic death that this villain deserves, I guess. <laughs>
2: he blows up like a balloon, shoots up to the ceiling, <laughs> and explodes, which is a little ridiculous, but yeah.
1: A, l- a little bit, but, you know, we, we've we had voodoo, we've had tarot, we've had sharks, we've had snakes. This this film has been building to this.
2: Okay. Have we talked about the voodoo ritual here?
1: Um No. No, we went straight to Bond rescued her. But okay, she was about to be snaked.
2: So there's this voodoo ritual. Um, tell us a little bit about what what's going on there.
1: Baron Samdi has Solitaire tied up, arms tied between two stakes, like the blonde sacrifice in King Kong. You know, same, same kind of thing. And he's bringing a snake towards her to bite her poisonously and do her end.
2: Okay, I said I was going to, revisit Baron Samedi, here's the time I'm going to do it. So Baron Samedi, we talked about, is that top hat wearing, skull-faced voodoo personage who embodies sort of this dark side of voodoo. We saw him in Spectre in the parade in the street, if you remember. Mm-hmm. Um, we talked about Baron Samedi in general when we were talking about Papa Doc Duvalier in Haiti. When we're talking about the Saint episode Sabao. Remember, in the very beginning of Sabao, it opens with someone dancing with two torches and the Baron Samedi makeup and top hat. And I said, remember that guy? Yeah. Because I'm going to bring him up again. That is the brother of the guy who plays Baron Samedi in this film. What? Yes. So (laughs) that that was, it's Jeffrey Holder in Live and Let Die. And in Sabao, it was Bosco Holder, who was the one who was doing the dancing in the beginning and also choreographed all the voodoo dancing.
1: Very cool. We think that Bond has escaped now that he's killed Kananga, but there's an epilogue in this film, as there sometimes is in Bond films. Bond and Solitaire are finally on that train that you spoke of yeah. <laughs> here at the end. And Solitaire is waxing poetic about how Bond like really understands her and that she feels like she can be really open with him and she trusts him and she's going on and on while bond's getting ready for bed and then turns out t has snuck aboard the train and is planning to cut off solitaire's fingers until bond is able to intervene and rescue her but then it seems like the film still isn't over because it closes with baron samedi perched at the front of the train
2: yeah jeffrey holder as baron samedi yeah I want to talk about the difference in the ending because Solitaire is one of the big mysteries in the Bond canon. In Casino Royale, we know what happens to Vesper Lind, one of Bond's true loves. At the end of Live and Let Die, both Bond and Solitaire survive. And they end at a beach house in Jamaica, which sounds very much like Goldeneye the way it's described— it was the beach house from which Bond and Lighter were spying on the island from, because you can see it out in the bay from there, and Bond eventually approaches the island by scuba diving. He learns scuba diving from Quarrel, by the way, so there's a whole training part where he learns how to scuba dive from Quarrel. Scuba dives all the way to the island, puts a limpet mine underneath the ship, blows it up and it explodes before it can drag them over the reef and all that. So eventually, the one that's actually eaten by sharks is Mr. Big. They manage to escape, and then they, it looks like they're going to have this great holiday together, staying in this house in Jamaica. You know, Quarrel and Strangways and all of them are still alive at this point in the book. But she's a mystery in that it looks like they like each other enough. It doesn't seem like as deep a love as he had for Vesper, but they're together-ish. And then in the next book, which we'll talk about when we do that movie, which is Moonraker, there's no mention of her. And there's no mention of her again until Dr. No, mid-career, and then he wonders whatever happened to her. So somewhere along the way, I don't know. The
1: <laughs> I mean, I think the movie makes it pretty clear. She's a little bit clingy. Like, I don't... I don't think Bond is as attached to her. Maybe in the book, since she doesn't have this whole Vestal Virgin thing going on, that it's more like she's been doing fine on her own and, well, then here's this awesome guy. Maybe he can keep up with Solitaire.
2: Well, in the book, the reason she lies in her original lie detector test on Bond and backs up Bond's story is because she sees her chance to escape. She's been in the clutches and being used by this guy ever since she lived in Jamaica. Remember in Shaft where – was it Shaft or Shaft's Big Score? Where Shaft goes to the woman's apartment and um, – It's
1: in Big Score. In, in Big and, Score. Like immediately seduces her. And, and then
2: she she slips out the back door with him. Yeah. Same thing. Solitaire's trying to get away from Mr. Big and sees Bond as her opportunity. So she gives her handlers the slip – and shows up at Bond's place to escape with him on the train. And so she sees him as someone who could actually keep her alive because he's going to try kill her. That's why. And maybe now that Mr. Big's dead, she doesn't need him as much anymore. Some of the clinginess may be that's what they're trying to get across in this, Mm. that, that that's why. But Bond really does like her, but not like Vesper, you know?
1: Yeah. Um, so, final thoughts on Live and Let Die?
2: I like that they said, let's do something different. Now, it may not have aged perfectly, and we've talked about how black exploitation films are inherently controversial. They were at the time. They still are to this day. But it has a distinctly... Unique feel among the Bond films. And I like that. It is the beginning of Roger Moore's career as Bond. And Sean Connery, at some point in time, said that Roger Moore was a good choice of a replacement for him. However, in a lot of interviews, he has said that, you know, he didn't like the comedic element. I did hear Roger Moore once say that in order to make the character his own, he had to do something different with it. There is a lot of corniness that starts to creep into the Bond films in the 70s. And I'm not a fan of that. And at one point in time, I would have told you that uh, Sean Connery was my favorite Bond and Roger Moore, one of my least favorite Bonds. Over time, particularly since Roger Moore has passed away, I have reevaluated this and have decided that I think Roger Moore is toward the top of the deck, in my opinion, among people who have betrayed Bond. Connery was higher and now I'm not so sure. I might like Roger Moore better than Connery in a lot of cases. I think that he suffers from these corny scripts, which is not his fault, you know. And even Connery said that that started to creep in with Diamonds Are Forever before he even left the series.
1: Yeah, Diamonds Are Forever is just as silly as the J.W. Pepper sequences in this film. And I would agree with that, that I had tainted Roger Moore by association with some of these sillier elements. And we're going to talk about Moonraker next. (laughs) But his performance as Bond itself, although definitely... More um, more of a smoothie in, in a way that is kind of more traditional. Like Sean Connery, obviously also sexy as hell, but in an edgier, like almost abusive boyfriend kind of way. And Roger Moore actually seems like a nice guy. I agree with you. He hasn't displaced Connery for me, but definitely he is no longer on the laughable list.
2: If they toned down some of the corniness, if J.W. Pepper was ironically more racist and less comedic, I think it would have come off better.
1: His racism seems sinister for just like half a second before – they go into lampooning and punishing him for it, and it might have been better if he were a little bit more of a dick and a little bit less of a punchline.
2: Well, yeah, well, l- less of a paper tiger because he has no power, despite the fact that he's the sheriff of this place. There's some interdepartmental rivalry here when the state troopers get called in, and I would have liked to have seen, you know, you know, these small towns in the south, deep south, the sheriff has a lot of power still to this day.
1: Yeah. This comes off a little bit more like super troopers. Just yeah. like the witch <laughs> in the so middle of con- a James Bond film.
2: <laughs> if they toned that stuff down a little bit, this could have been one of the best Bond films ever. It's not, but it it's still fun and entertaining.
1: I will say um, Kananga slash Mr. Big as a dual villain, awesome. Like
2: Yeah. Yafit Koto, great. Jeffrey Holder, great. Jane Seymour, great. The guy that plays Tee Hee, I'm not sure who that was. Julius Harris, I think. Yeah. You know, they were all great in this. I wish Felix Leiter was more of a street agent, but it was cool seeing the stuff in Harlem. They got some of the black culture down. You know, I liked that. The filet of soul scenes. Oh, we didn't even talk about the other version of
0: oh, Live of and Live, Die.
2: Die that was sung in the uh, in the club. Which was kind of more reggae influenced.
1: Well, a part of this happened because for whatever reason, they hired McCartney to write the song, but they didn't think that the contract included him performing it. And so they went and had hired B.J. Arno to create this other version and perform it. So then they ended up with two contracts with people willing to perform the song. So that's why Arno's version makes it in. in And that that was great, too. I thought that was
2: awesome. If I was rewriting this, J.W. Pepper would have been more serious. Felix Leiter would have been more serious. I'm okay with the the crazy shit shit with the, the lady in the plane. Yeah. <laughs> I, I'm okay with that. But then I would have had more of it be in actual Jamaica rather than this Sam Monique. I would have had a little more emphasis on the sort of evilness of drugs and drug smuggling. But otherwise – Yeah, pretty good and best Bond song ever. So Absolutely. All right. Well, I think that does it for this week. I want to remind you to tell a friend. Spread the word about Geek Channel 8. You know, we do what we do for the love of it, and uh, we would like as many people to hear it as possible. If you want to talk directly to us, you can write to us at GC8podcast. That's letter G, letter C, number 8podcast at gmail.com. Until next time, this is Eric.
1: This is Johanna.
2: Signing off. I think powerboats were like a new hot thing in the early 70s. (laughs)